I grew up 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia. I spent 22 years there, although I lived in a development in the suburbs, surrounded by horse farms and a pond, then I went bass fishing all the time. And, but I had a lot of contact and experience with all types of people, backgrounds, and cultures. I've been told my whole life that they, uh, people weren't sure of my ethnicity. I've gotten Hispanic and Italian and even Asian. My genealogy says that I'm Scotch, Irish, and Welsh, but who knows, you know? Well, I moved from outside of Philadelphia to the heart of Arkansas for Bible college. As you can imagine, that was a different experience. And I quickly learned that the things that I had grown up experiencing were not everyone else's experience. And I pretty quickly heard weird stereotypes and and racist language and jokes. I found that both in the tire shop that I worked in and in the church circles. And it was a pretty jarring experience. And we live in a culture right now where race, ethnicity, and identity are frequent subjects in uh, just the zeitgeist, in all that's going on in our culture right now. And sadly, there have been times throughout history where Christians were not always on the forefront of loving and accepting people of different cultural backgrounds. In fact, the Bible has even been used to condone hatred and violence at times. But When the gospel is taken seriously, the opposite happens. We don't think about this often, but Jesus actually experienced growing up in a racial tinderbox. The Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. The Romans were there, and they were in control. And there was a lot of things that were going on that caused a lot of friction. I'm sure there were stereotypes and jokes being told in both directions. I'm sure... They lived in a society where it was common for people to get preferential treatment opportunities to people that looked more like them and talked more like them. And later, after the death and resurrection, the apostle Peter gets a clear message from God for the church to go to the Gentiles and to give them the gospel. And that's one of the beautiful things about the early church was its diversity in ethnicity and gender, and it broke out of these barriers of hate and prejudice, and it shook up the world, illuminating a love that drew people in. But that wasn't the start of God loving people of all ethnicities. God so loved the world from the beginning. And yes, God chose Israel to be a bright and a shining light to the world, to show God, uh, to show the world who God is. Israel was meant to be an example in order to draw all people to God the Father. We see this in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Sometimes people refer to it as the fifth gospel because of how much it talks about the coming Messiah prophetically. And several times in this book, the prophet talks about how Israel was meant to be a light to the nations, the nations meaning those nations outside of Israel, the Gentile nations, and how the coming Messiah would be a light, and how Israel in the Old Testament failed to do that, but that God was going to make it happen despite that. Isaiah 49.6 is one of those passages. It says this, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. And it goes on, it says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. 
in the temple. Uh, Jerusalem there even had a court in it called the Court of the Gentiles, where people from all over the world were given space to come and worship God. When Jesus' parents took baby Jesus to the temple for the first time, a man named Simeon prophetically recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, and he emphasized how God cared about having a relationship with all people, regardless of race or culture. This is what Simeon said when he saw that baby Jesus, understanding that this was the Messiah in Luke chapter 2, verse 29. It says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. See, not only on earth, we see this happen throughout Jesus's life. Not only did Jesus love the little children on earth while, this, uh, while he walked this earth, but God has always loved the little children of the world as well. Obviously, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of, of war and violence, and these are difficult passages to read sometimes, but just because countries and people fought doesn't mean that God didn't love them or didn't want a relationship with them. And Jesus stepped right into the middle of this situation. That's what we've been doing in this series. Once again, we've been talking about the words and works of Jesus Christ so that we can walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus. And Jesus stepped right into these uh, situations, this, this uh, frustrating and pressure that was accompanied these tensions between races and peoples and countries. And he pushed past the walls of division of race and gender and economics, and he pressed toward people. One particular time, he was approached by a Canaanite woman, you know, a non-Jewish woman, and she asked him to heal her daughter. She had no hope, and her poor daughter needed help. And we're going to see in this passage like many portions of the Bible, that you can easily take a situation out of context from from other scriptures and say, well, I don't like this verse. And we're going to see some difficult passages here today. This is one of the more difficult sets of verses to handle. But I believe that God is trying to show us something while we wrestle with this text. This account is found in Matthew chapter 15. You can turn there in your Bible. There should be a Bible there in front of you. You can go to the app or it'll be up on the screen as well. Matthew chapter 15. Now, when we find a difficult passage and we find something that we read and we're, it promotes fear in us and we're maybe even doubt, like, what is this all about? It's good to look at the scriptures surrounding those verses in order to see the foundation that is being laid. No scripture stands alone on uh, just one verse by itself. So in the first nine verses of chapter 15, the Pharisees had tried to give Jesus uh, trouble, tried to give him the business because his disciples didn't follow their traditional ceremonies of cleanliness. God's law in scripture had told the priests to ceremonially wash their hands before service. But the oral tradition of the Mishnah took this requirement, it wasn't scripture, it was their cultural tradition, and they passed this on as a requirement, not only for the priests, but to put on everyone else's shoulders as well. They took it further than they needed to. 
And they did this, the Pharisees and the, and the uh, scribes and all, the Sanhedrin. They had taken things that God had commanded them to do and taken them further and further. And this happened many times. Pharisees had taken things too far. And they loved the outward ways of showing purity, the outward ways of showing that they were God's type of people while their hearts and their tongues were filthy with pride. And Jesus tells them that sin doesn't get on us. This ceremonial cleanliness thing was for them to symbolically think about their hearts being clean. And, and, and Jesus tells them it's not what gets on your hand that makes you sinful. We sin. Sin comes from our hearts. And traditions can be sinful when we elevate them to the level of Scripture. But Jesus is pushing back against the Pharisees' habit of taking things farther than God intended. And maybe you've, how many of you ever met somebody? You thought they were like holier than God, right? They just took it further and they wanted you to know that they were holy. And Jesus is pushing back against this. And he's setting the stage also because we're going to see in this whole chapter that he's doing something here. He's setting the stage because ceremonial hand-washing was one of the ways that they segregated themselves from the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't do this, so they distanced themselves from them. And they'd taken it a step further than they needed to go. And traditional and ceremonial cleanliness was not a means of salvation. A changed heart and faith in Christ is where our salvation comes from. But Jesus is laying the groundwork to show the Jewish Christians that the Gentile people were loved. They weren't to be ostracized or hated or to be ran away from. All right, y'all ready for a little bit of awkwardness and some hard passages in Scripture? Verse 21 is where we'll be. Jesus leaves the Pharisees and the hand-washing incident. And it says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. And she said, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciple came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, Jesus answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you, uh, for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly See, here you could remove what Jesus says from the context of this passage, the context of this chapter that we're going to see where God is building something. He's giving us a message. You could take that verse out of context and say, Jesus just called a woman from a different ethnicity a dog. But let's take a closer look at this whole story. Jesus had withdrawn from this fight with the Pharisees. And we see him next in Tyre and Sidon in modern-day Lebanon, not a Jewish area. And there he found a Gentile, Canaanite woman. She had a daughter who was possessed, and she asked Jesus for help. 
Now, she recognizes that Jesus was the son of David, which was an Old Testament title for the Messiah. And it appears that she knew the Old Testament and that uh, she had faith that Jesus might just be the promised one. She has this issue. She has this problem. But Jesus didn't answer her at first. Perhaps Jesus wanted to see what his disciples were going to say. And disciples, they were just embarrassed by her. They, they just could not believe that this Gentile woman was following them. She was loud. She was obnoxious. And she didn't just ask once. This, she kept asking for help and following them around. And they were annoyed by her. And they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, tell her to go away. Jesus says, I'm only sent to the Jews. Now, God did have a covenant with the Jewish people, this nation of Israel, and God had chosen them to be his example to the entire world, that through him, his light would shine to every nation and people. And most of the early disciples were, in fact, Jewish. But Israel had failed at being the light to the Gentiles. And Jesus came to fulfill what they wouldn't do. And we're going to see here that it's obvious that maybe Jesus wasn't only sent to the Jews. Or, or was he actually saying that? Or was he saying the, the part of the disciples, what they had in their minds, saying it out loud? The Jews in Jesus' day sometimes referred to Gentile as dogs as an insult to show their inferiority. In the Greek, this word is kuon, but the exact word Jesus used in this verse was canarion, which means small dog or puppy. And Jesus says, they call you dogs because of your race. But she says, even dogs get to eat of the crumbs under the table, and she kneels before him, begging for help. And it appears to me that Jesus used the term dog here as a tongue-in-cheek phrase to highlight the lesson that he's about to give the disciples who wanted to turn her away. They had thought that Jesus was there only for the Jews. Send her away, Jesus. And another thing to consider when reading God's word is reading it, you cannot convey a twinkle in the eye or the tone of voice. And it may just be that Jesus was almost facetiously or sarcastically presenting her with the sort of language that she might expect from a Jew in order to test her faith to see how she would react. But in spite of this, she responds with belief and persistence. And Jesus heals her daughter and applauds the faith of a Gentile. He honors her. Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And the daughter was healed instantly. The verses right before this passage, the scribes had rejected Jesus' teaching, again, because of an argument over hand-washing and separation from Gentiles. And here, we see a juxtaposition of the Gentile woman's faith versus the Jewish Pharisees. Her faith was laudable and tenacious. Her faith was given honor, while the faith of the Pharisees was shallow and exclusionist and condemnable. The Pharisees honored God with their lips, but they were blind to what God actually wanted them to do. And their religious action pushed people away from God and put burdens on them. But Jesus tore down those dividing walls of hostility and gave people freedom. 
In the next few verses, he continues this picture of breaking out into the Gentiles. In verse 29 and 30 through 31, it tells us that Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. And then he sets down on a mountain, most likely there to teach them. And the people brought all kinds of sick people to be healed. Think of what that might mean for someone to have this disease, to have this chronic illness, to come to Jesus and, and to be healed. And as Jesus is healing them, the Bible tells us they all glorified the God of Israel. And this area that Jesus is in, this evidence leans towards these people being mostly Gentile people. That's the area that he was in. And the Jews viewed the Gentiles as unclean. In this whole chapter of 15 of Matthew, Jesus is chipping away at this. And it seems obvious that the healing of the daughter of the Canaanite woman was meant to emphasize what he's about to do. The hand-washing incident, the healing of the Canaanite woman, and now the healing of a Gentile crowd. And then in verse 32 through 39, Jesus saw this Gentile crowd around him, and he knew that they were hungry. It had been three days, the Bible says, since they had had any food. And the Jewish culture said, don't eat with the Gentiles. But it says as Jesus looks out on this crowd that he had compassion on them, unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way to get food. So much for Jesus actually thinking that these people only deserved crumbs, right? He's about to feed them. And a crowd this big couldn't possibly find food nearby. They were far away from any places of food, and there were so many people. The Bible says there was at least 4,000 men alone. So Jesus took what he had, the seven loaves and five fishes that were brought to him, and Jesus divided it and multiplied it. And this was the second time that Jesus fed multitudes with fishes and loaves, first for the Jewish people and now for the Gentiles. First in the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets of food left over, one for each of the tribes of Israel. But with the feeding of the 4,000, there was only seven baskets left over. In Deuteronomy 7.1, it says there are seven Canaanite tribes that are listed there. And the same number that Paul mentions in the New Testament in Acts 13.19. Seven baskets seems to represent all Gentile nations. And both feeding stories foreshadowing what Jesus would do at the table of the Lord's Supper. Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it and breaks it and gives the bread. And you don't think often about this, but the fish is something that would have required the shedding of blood. The Lord's table is now open to both Jews and Gentiles. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the light to the nations that Israel failed to be. The Lord's table is now open to everyone. It was a big deal that Jesus ate with them. And later, the early church would be known for breaking bread together, all races and all genders. Jesus broke down these barriers. This is why this is such a radical message that Jesus came to bring. But this wasn't really new. You might think, well, Jesus changed everything. This message was clear right from the beginning. God cares about the world, for God so loved the world. From the beginning of Jesus' life, we see 
him changing things. The Gentile magi from the east had shown up to worship and recognize Jesus' birth. Jesus had already shown love and attention to a mixed-race person, the Samaritan woman who was half Jewish and half Gentile, giving her water to never thirst again. And then we see Jesus commence the faith of the Roman centurion in Matthew 8, and he heals the servant. And we see this all throughout Jesus' ministry, pushing past the boundaries that we set up to say, not those type of people. Not those over there. See, not only does Jesus on this earth love the little children, God has always loved all the little children of the world as well. And anyone who were to take what Jesus says to the Canaanite woman and twist it to promote hate misses the whole point of that chapter. That Jesus' ministry as he tears down walls and pushes out the gospel to the Gentile people. And Paul, later on after the resurrection, frames the attitude of the new church built on Jesus Christ in this way in Galatians 3, written to the church of Galatia in verse 28. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not that our differences and uniqueness and culture and genders disappear but it's that we are one in Christ. And that, it's a, that is above all else. And our identity is found first in Christ. So the divisions between us should be non-existent. We should love each other like brothers and sisters in Jesus. And the early church understood this. And it shook up the culture that they were living in. And the Jews didn't like it and the Romans didn't like it. In 165 AD, a pagan writer named Lucian wrote a story that included one of the earliest secular descriptions of the early church. And this statement is interesting. He's saying this, even if he is mocking them, he says some pretty crazy things. And this is what the pagan writer said. He said, first thing, every morning, you'll see a crowd of old women and widows and orphans bringing prisoners of all sorts of food. And he went on to say that the early Christians are incredibly quick off the mark when one of them gets in trouble. They ignore their own interests completely because their lawgiver, meaning Jesus, has convinced them that when they start worshiping that crucified sage of theirs, that they are all each other's brothers and sisters. And that's coming from someone who didn't particularly like Christians. He's kind of making fun of them talking about how they're mostly old women and widows. and or He's trying to downgrade them. Even though we know that's where Jesus' heart was, to the outcast. And to those that society saw as less than. And this powerful example of the early church is where we get our faith from. And we're called to love each other because Christ first loved us. And he put himself on the line for the interests of the whole world. And that's every race and gender and economic status. Whether someone that is homeless or recovering in addiction, we are brothers and sisters in the family of God. Each person made in the image of God. And that means life has value all the way from the womb, all the way to the nursing home. 
because we are made in the image of God. And these verses are an example of why we need to engage these hard passages. And at first blush, we'd say, I don't like that Jesus said that. Because many times we've got to push past them because there's beauty underneath. This message called the gospel broke out of a regional, mainly Jewish sect of followers. Just a small amount of people to now a worldwide diverse people proclaiming together their love for Jesus through thousands of years. Statistics tell us by 2050, the country that's projected to have the most Christians in the world is China, which is actually illegal to have them, to be a church there. And it's so amazing that our unity, in spite of our difference, it's one of the most miraculous things about the church. The fact that I can go to Cuba or Indonesia or Costa Rica or Haiti or Sudan and have the most important thing in the world in common with someone is so special, unique, and beautiful. And we're to follow this radical, groundbreaking love of Jesus, not just across the world, but across the street. Not just saying Jesus loves people in Haiti, but Jesus loves people on that other side of the tracks that I'm a little bit scared to go to. Because Jesus loved towards people of every ethnicity, every gender, men and women, every economic status. And he pulled down those divisions between us while lovingly standing on the truth and proclaiming the power of the cross. God loves all the children of the world, everyone whom he breathed life into. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Altars open. We've been practicing this a little bit more today, and, and don't ever think, oh, no, no one went forward to pray, and Pastor Phil's going to be so embarrassed. I, I, that is not why we do this. It's not a magical thing. It is a place to, of just letting go of embarrassment and not caring about anything else but following what God tells us to do. And if that means you pray in your seat, that's amazing. That's awesome. But we want to give you the opportunity. And maybe this morning, it's not about anything we even talked about. Maybe you're struggling, or you've got a, a special burden in your life, and you need to, to come and, and pray or pray in your seat. We welcome you to do that this morning. We saw here that Jesus pushed past those walls that we put up. And one way that you can find where you've put those walls up in your life is how many times you say those people, or they always. And you look at who you're grouping into this whole group of people, those type of people. Jesus loves those people. In fact, even if they are against him, the Bible tells us to love our enemies. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we just compromise everything about God's Word or nothing like that. It means we love people, despite their differences. Instead of hating them or insulting them or cutting them down, instead, we pray that God would convict their heart and draw them to Himself. We show love despite their uh, attacking us. I don't know who those people are for you. Could be a race thing that you need to repent of today. Maybe you've been one of those people that you, you tell those types of jokes or you say those types of things or you cross the street in this way when, when someone's coming towards you because you learned when you were a kid. Those are the type of people that you stay away from. Maybe it's an economic thing and it doesn't have anything to do with race, but it's, uh, you can tell in your mind what this person looks like. Oh, they're a drug addict or oh, they're a prostitute or oh, they're a, a backpacker. God forbid. Maybe that's what you need to repent of. Instead of seeing a soul that God breathed life into, we put people into walls and categories to make us not have to care about them. Because that's what they are, that's what they always do. God, forgive us for not having any faith that He can change people. Forgive us for thinking that we're better. Well, I don't struggle with that stuff, so that means I'm okay. Well, I probably struggle with pride, right? probably struggle with thinking too much of myself, with apathy. Help us to love people for who they are, to look past their problems and and see them as a person that is made in the image of God, and that life has value, and that's someone's daughter or son. We take a few moments and just allow God to root out any ugliness in us. And I'm, I'm not standing up here saying that I've been immune to it in my life. God has done deep work, hard work, helping me realize my biases and prejudices. Many that have nothing to do with race. But the people that I thought that had too many tattoos or piercings or... I mean, we got all kinds of ways to think that God can't draw people to himself. Let's take a few moments to allow God to work on those. Again, the altar's open. It doesn't have to be about what we spoke about today. Maybe you're just struggling with something totally different and you feel like you need to come down. Feel free.
Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet sure that heaven is your home. You haven't yet come to Jesus, put your faith and trust in Jesus as the only means of your salvation. All the way back at the beginning of creation, man disobeyed God. And ever since then, sin has flooded this earth, brokenness, pain, sin, and death. And all through the Old Testament, God is giving Israel and, and his people ways to get to him. And they continually disobeyed and, and they continued to turn their back to idols and other things. And then God got off the throne. He was born of a virgin. Jesus, an equal part of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect and a holy life for 33 years. He taught, he did miracles, he pointed to who he was through prophecy, and then he laid down his life on a cross in your place to cover all the sin and shame and guilt that you have ever created in your life. And the Bible tells us that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It tells us that God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus in my place. That is the gospel. None of us are good enough. Uh, the best that we can do, the Bible says, is filthy rags. But you can call out to God right now. You can call out and put your faith in Jesus Christ with something like this. It's not a magic prayer changed it however you need to to apply to you you could call out to him with something like this right now dear Jesus I know I'm a sinner and I know because of my sin that I deserve hell but God forgive me I'm turning from my sin and I'm turning to you thank you Lord cross thank you for covering my sin thank you Lord for saving me that's you and you called out to God and you're sincere and you're not playing games or just reciting a, a prayer just to do it that's amazing to make that choice the biggest choice you'll ever make in your whole life become a Jesus follower a disciple of Christ an apprentice of Jesus I'd love to be able to talk to you, Pastor Scott or I will reach out to you. If you write that on your connection card before you put it in the offering box and say, I chose Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about what's next because it's not the end of something. It's the beginning of the most amazing adventure that you'd ever have. Dear Jesus, we love you. God, I pray you help us to be a people that reflects your love, your unconditional love to the world. God, I pray that you'd help us to look like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to walk like him and talk like him and love our enemies and serve people and put others' needs before our own. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.